we were singing that last song, I just imagined in my mind us coming together together today and we, we come to the doors and we find them locked and that you can't get in, can't come in to pray, can't come in to sing, can't come in to worship. And, and how frustrating that would be. Those were, the, those were the bonds of the old covenant. There was a veil. There was separation. There wasn't the freedom to come together, to pray, to sing, to worship. But the freedom that the new covenant brings, these are the things we've been studying in 2 Corinthians, is that the veil is no longer there. And that we're free to come because of, because of one person, because of Christ who pleads our cause, who rights our wrongs, who breaks our chains. We gather together here every Sunday because of Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And I am so thankful for that. And I'm thankful you're here today. And we're going to look at some great scripture together here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we continue to talk about the, the beauty of the new covenant, our responsibilities in relation to this freedom that we have in Jesus. And so I'm going to begin by reading our verses here, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, what ministry? The ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit. We do not lose heart, Paul says, but we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning Refuse to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask your blessing on your word this morning. We ask that you would accomplish wonderful things in our hearts and in our minds. We ask that the word would go unhindered in spirit, that you would work and need the truth of your word into our lives today so that we would leave here not merely, merely hearers of your word, but, but doers of the word that we would leave here today rejoicing in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's come. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So one of the things we talked about last week as we worked through the first couple verses here is that discipleship is our job. Discipleship is our responsibility. Now you may have a career or something that you pursue and you make money, but, but the reality is if you're a follower of Jesus, discipleship is your mission, discipling others. And so we've been talking about what it is to disciple. Last week, we looked at the first two verses here, and we talked about the fact that Paul says we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart in this mission that's been given to us. We don't quit. It can be tough. 
We talked about the fact that where the gospel is, there is always intertwined with it suffering and affliction. Jesus promises this. Paul experiences this for us. And we've experienced it too. And so we understand that it's easy for us to lose heart. But he says, don't do it. Second thing he says is don't manipulate people. Don't manipulate. And I would encourage you, if you weren't able to be here last week, maybe go back, check out our YouTube or podcast so that you can kind of catch up on some of these things because we talked about the manipulation that often takes place in churches. And there's other people that we can certainly pick on, but we tried to pick on ourselves a little bit and make sure that we're understanding that it's just simply proclaiming the truth of God's word. We talked about those ideas of, of eisegesis and exegesis and how eisegesis, when we, when we start with what we want, when we start with the God that we want, when we start with the Jesus that we want, uh, the life that we want, and then we look into the word of God to try to find support for us. It's the wrong way of approaching scripture. It's a devastating way of approaching scripture. Rather, we exegete God's word. We let God's word determine who he is, who we are, how we're to live our lives. And so today we pick up where we left off last week. He's offering us encouragement, reminders, and instruction regarding the work that we're called to do, the work of discipleship. But we begin with a dilemma. Just because we, we boldly and faithfully present the message of Jesus, the truth of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, what we have even sung about this morning, it does not mean that it will be received by those who hear. Verse 3 teaches that mankind's hearts are hardened. They're veiled. Remember that great story in Isaiah 6? This is where Isaiah has this incredible experience where he's in the throne room of God. I, it's incredible for us because we get to read about it. It wasn't very incredible for him in the moment. He's like, I'm, I'm undone. He thought this was the end for him. But it, it's this great story. And then all of a sudden, towards the end, after he's explaining all these things, he hears the voice, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah boldly says, here am I, send me. It's every missionary's favorite passage to go to. I'll go. I'll be the one who's sent. But the story doesn't actually end there. God has a few more comments that he gives. He says this, Yahweh, in verse 9 of that same chapter says, Go, Isaiah, say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So it says, Isaiah, go, give the message. But they're not going to listen. And their hearts will harden to the truth that you speak. And then Isaiah says, well, how long do you want me to do that? And he goes on and says, I want you to do it until the cities lie waste and the houses are empty with people. You see, Isaiah's commission here is our commission. But Isaiah's dilemma is also our dilemma. Humans are born into sin, sin that hardens their heart towards God, sin that veils and blinds them from seeing the glory of God. As I left the house this morning, the, the sun was coming up and it was beautiful and there's, there's dew everywhere and it's glistening and I'm just thinking, man, God is glorious. You see it in his creation. But what maybe the other six-sevenths of the world wouldn't even cross their mind. 
They don't see the glory of God. They don't experience it in the same way we do. We address this back in chapter 3 and verse 14. Here's what Paul said there. He said, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the law, that same veil remains unlifted. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the depravity of mankind. Romans 3, 10 through 12 offers this insight. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Man, man cannot see the glory of God because of the veil that is over their heart, the veil that is over their mind. Man has hardened himself against God. As it says in Romans 1 verse 18, they suppress the truth. They see it and they, they push it away. It's not what they want. Man cannot, man will not see the glory of God. I, I love what Paul mentions there, and we, we reference this back in chapter 3 where he says, even when it's openly read to them, they miss it. When they read it in the synagogues, they miss it. And I think of Jesus' own experience where he, he goes back to Nazareth after the wilderness, and he, he opens the scroll, and he reads of the suffering servant, he reads of himself the prophecies that speak of him and what he'll do. And he says, this day, this is fulfilled in your ears. And how did they respond? With veiled hearts. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And they ran him out of town and tried to throw him off a cliff. Paul had that experience probably in pretty much every synagogue he went to. As he would open up the scrolls and as he would, would teach them and show them Jesus, they, they refused to see it. To be clear, the issue is not the message. It's not the gospel. The issue is not the truth surrounding Jesus and his life. The issue is the heart of man. The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel. Because the sun is not less splendid because the blind don't perceive it. Paul goes on to make it clear that because of the veil, they, they're perishing. They're marching towards their death. It goes back to that, that passage where they're, they're, we're in the parade and they, they smell the aroma of Jesus, but to them the aroma of Jesus is it's pungent. It's the aroma of death. And their perishing should be our motivation. Right, discipler? Right, follower of Jesus? When we, when we think about the perishing of those around us, it should be our motivation. I, I think of that great hymn, Fanny Crosby, Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying, Snatch Them in Pity from Sin in the Grave. Weep or the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. We have this responsibility. But the veil isn't the only thing that is working against them. The veil isn't the only thing that's working against the message that we proclaim. Notice verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel. And the glory of God, who is the image of God. Satan, the great deceiver, the father of lies, is actively working to blind the minds of men so that they cannot perceive the glory of God. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
One commentator, Guthrie, writes this. He says, thus, people's minds constitute one very significant battleground in the cosmic conflict between God's gospel and the twisted machinations of the God of this world. The battleground is the hearts of mankind. And so how does Satan do this? How does he blind people? What are his tactics? We talked about a few of them last week, and so I'll work through some of these things quickly. But he uses false teachers, certainly evident as we look at any of the New Testament epistles, false teachers who will twist God's word, false teachers who will come at you just as Satan came at you in the garden and said, did God really say this? And they give you another message that's a little bit off. And people will gladly accumulate for themselves teachers because they have itching ears. We want people to support what we want. And we gravitate towards those people who will support our opinion. Satan will also appeal to our pride. This was a tactic used in the garden as well. Remember how he came to Adam and Eve? He came to Adam and Eve with this twisted view of God, this exalted view of self. God knows that if you eat of the fruit of that, you'll be like him. What's he saying? He's dangling the lure in front and says, God's holding out on you. Have you ever heard that in your head? Yeah. You've heard the temptation to think, oh, God's not good. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. You can do better. He dangles it in front of us and we gobble it up. This describes so well our present context, our present culture, people who have twisted and cynical views of God and people who have ultra-egotistical views of self. We don't worship other gods in a, in a plural sense like maybe Buddhists do. We, we, we are the gods. We want what we want, and you give us what we want in our pride and arrogance. Satan also blinds us with our own pleasures and lusts. We fall prey to the very things that Jesus resisted for us in the wilderness, the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan dangles these pleasures in front of us and we, we bite it. He brings relationships that quickly become more important to us than Jesus. He brings uh, hobbies and other things in life that quickly become more important to us than Jesus. And we replace him. Broadly speaking, he uses humanistic philosophy, things we've talked about. He uses political ideology. He uses distortions of the gospel. Oh, it's, it's close, but that doesn't count in the gospel. It has to be true. He uses other religions to blind people to what is true. And these tactics, they all feed our selfish hearts, thicken the veil so that we cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Isn't that a great phrase? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul returns us back now to this, this theme that's woven through already of light. He's taken us back to where, where we talked about Moses and the veil that was over his face and how when Moses went up the mountain that second time to get, to get the, the tablets that, that he had crushed and broken down at the bottom of the mountain and he goes up the second time and he prayed that prayer that Lathia sang about this morning, show me your glory. And he was shown the glory. What happened? His face was shiny and he had to put a veil over his face. 
This is what we're talking about. The same light that shone on Moses those many years ago is the light of Jesus Christ. It is the glory of God. Here Paul, though, he's drawing a parallel for us between light and truth. What is light is also truth. They cannot see the light. They cannot see the truth. Light reveals the true nature of a thing, doesn't it? When you're in a dark room, all you can see are the, the shadows and the, the figures of things and, and your, your mind is trying to interpret and figure out what those things are. And finally, when you turn the light on, you're like, oh, that wasn't somebody trying to murder me with a knife across the room. It was you know, a, a guitar case with a pizza box on it and then a, a cup sitting on top of it. And you think, wow, what happened? That's what happens. And that's how we get twisted in this world. We need light so that we can know what is truth. And the light of Jesus, the message of Jesus, it is the message of truth about who God is. He's holy. He's righteous. It's the message of truth about who we are. We're sinful. We're full of pride and we're rebellious. But then Paul throws in this statement that offers great clarity even to the identity of Jesus. And I, I wish we had time to run down this trail, but he says he is the image of God. Friends, that is so important for our understanding of who Jesus truly is. He's not another created being. He is the image of God. He is the expression of the invisible God. He is the word that God speaks and comes and we hear and we listen. Well, that glorious truth just bleeds into verses 5 and 6 and our hope. Yes, our families, yes, our friends, billions of other people we've never met are blinded to the glory of who Jesus is. They've never experienced what we hopefully experience this morning as we get to sing, Jesus, Jesus, makes the darkness tremble. And that's exactly why we must, like Paul, openly, boldly, zealously proclaim this message, the truth of Jesus. Paul's, Paul's next bit of encouragement speaks of proclaiming. He says, for we do not, verse five, we do not proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves, where are we? We're servants. We're your servants and we're Jesus' servants. Paul clearly distinguishes himself from the false teachers and the hucksters that we've already talked about in the context who are making it about them. And he says, this isn't about me. It's not about Paul. It's not about Timothy. It's all about Jesus Christ the Lord. We're just his servants. We're just your servants. The clear focus of Paul's bold message is Jesus Christ the Lord. You know, every piece of that matters a great deal. We, we can say that, and if we've been around church a long time and we've sang a lot of hymns and songs, it can just flow right off. Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean? It means that Jesus was born of woman. He came, his name, his his human name was Jesus. His human given name by God's prophetic decree was Jesus. He was born of Mary. 
But this Jesus was the promised Christ. He was the promised Messiah that had been promised through all of the, the pages of the Old Testament, through prophets, and through the history of Israel. He wasn't just any person. He was the promised Messiah who would come and by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection would be our Savior. Jesus would do what none of us could do. Jesus would do what none of us want to do. He accomplishes it for us. And because of this, we call him Lord. And we recognize him to be the almighty one. His almightiness doesn't depend on us calling him that. But it's what we call him in recognition of all that he has done. And that truth is the truth that Romans 10 teaches. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will find deliverance. They will find rescue. Those who call on the Lord, the Almighty One, Jesus Christ. Paul has given his life to the service of Jesus and this message as he served churches and the Gentiles abroad. He's taken this message. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved to a lot of different places and through a lot of different affliction. And he hasn't lost heart yet. He continues to speak it. Romans 10 continues this way. Call on the name of the Lord, it says, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will someone believe in somebody that they've never heard of? And how will they hear unless somebody proclaims it? And how will somebody proclaim it unless they go? Unless they're sent? Unless they make a move? Friends, those are the questions we have to grapple with even here today. How will they hear without a proclaimer? How will they proclaim unless someone goes to them? I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about sending you to, to Egypt to work with the Longs or Brazil to work with the McClure's or we're praying for the Shadles this week in Ethiopia. I'm talking about the people you work next to. How, how will they hear unless someone proclaims it? I'm talking about the people who live on your street. If you don't go, if I don't go, if, if we, we're not sent, what's going to happen? It's a bit reminiscent of Isaiah 6, isn't it? Who, who will go? Here am I, send me. Is that, that the prayer we're willing to pray? Is that the commitment we're willing to make? See, the reason we don't preach ourselves Paul goes on and instead we preach Christ is because man I can't imagine me preaching myself and what that would accomplish in somebody's life it'd be pretty miserable but we preach the bold message of Jesus and Jesus changes lives we see it in the pages of the gospel we've seen it in our own lives we've seen it in our own history like we discussed two weeks ago, the bold message of Jesus is what unveils the hearts of people. It's what causes blind eyes to see. It's only him that can make those differences in a person's life. And Paul illustrates that in our final verse, verse six, I'll repeat it again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
is the one who shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What's he alluding to here? Creation. When there was, when there was darkness and God said, let there be light. Only God can do that. Only God can speak light into existence. Only he can flip the switch. Only God can lift the veil of darkness. Therefore, our confidence can't rest in us, in our eloquence, in our manipulations of people. It must rest in the open, bold, zealous proclamation of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the message that's been entrusted to our care. Verse 6, grammatically, I included this in your bulletin because I'm a nerd sometimes. It answers verse 4. You can look at that on your own time. 6 offers hope-filled answers to the hopelessness of verse 4 and the blindness of man. It's not original with me. That's from Guthrie in a commentary. I failed to cite it. But There's so much we can talk about when we talk about the imagery of the light of Jesus that runs through Scripture. It's a beautiful thread that we find, and I just want to look at a couple of passages with you to just show you Jesus, to show you his light. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to have this on the screen behind me. Amos is going to pull that up. I want to start in verse 2. Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. What light are we talking about, Isaiah? You have multiplied the nations. You've increased his joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There's so much we could talk about in here. We won't do it. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of the oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You have delivered them, God. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle torment and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? No more wars. Verse 6, probably familiar to most of us. How is all this possible? Because unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a light that is shown in the darkness. How is it? Because unto us a child is born. Jesus has come. John chapter 1. John begins his gospel reflecting a bit on Genesis chapter 1. And he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word is speaking of Jesus, by the way. And the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, through Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life. And the life was the what? The light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, there was a man sent from God. His name was John, and he came to bear witness, as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. You want to speak of blindness? He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, he believed on his name. He, he gave them the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood and nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, I hope you know his glory. We could look at these and say, well, those might be talking about Jesus. Well, Jesus clears that up in John chapter 8 when he stands in front of the crowd and says this, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the dilemma of darkness is met with the glorious light of Jesus Christ. The dilemma of blindness is met with the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. Because of this, I'll reiterate what we talked about last week. Don't lose heart. Our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in Him. Our confidence is in his message, his ability to change a person's life. And so zealously pray for your friends and family. Be like we talked about last week, George Whitfield. Zealously pray. Spend your life praying for them. Zealously proclaim the good news with your family, with your friends. Patiently wait for the Lord to work. And like Paul, we share this message in full dependence upon the Spirit. Our confidence resides in Him, not ourselves. We don't give way to manipulation or cunning practices or twisting God's Word. Our confidence is in the message of Jesus Christ. So we share the message of Jesus. Here's, here's a quick point. Therefore, we must know the message of Jesus. If we're going to be a discipler of people, what are we discipling them to? We have to know Christ so that we can make him known. We have to learn the gospel and, and love the gospel and delight in the gospel and live out of the gospel so that, so that we can share it with other people. And if you're here and you say, I, I, I don't know that I know it well enough, man, we've got some tracks downstairs that will help you to learn and grow real short. You can get, we got a great book that's even here in our resource center, uh, What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. And he'll walk you through and help you just understand better so that you can share better the message of Jesus. I also think there's a, a, a world missions element to what we're talking about here. Because we're to send others as well. We can't all go to those places I mentioned earlier. But what do we do? We send others to those places. Because we care about the veiled hearts there. We care about the blinded eyes all across the world. And we want them to know the light of Jesus as well. What are you doing to send others? Support others? Keep sharing in those ways.
Uh, we have one of the, the families that we pray for with regularity here today. Eli and his son Ethan are here. The Dow serve in the, the Air Force, in the chaplain ministry. And what, why do we pray for them? Because of the opportunities they have week in, week out, day in, day out to enter the lives of people who are in darkness and share the light of Jesus. We pray that that work would be effective. So keep sharing. Second point I want to make. What we see in this passage is that Paul embraces the reality of the blindness of men. He's not, in other words, Paul's not surprised by this. He's not surprised that people are blinded. He's not surprised that, that sinners and unbelievers are sinners and unbelievers. And that they don't see the glory of Christ. And this is how we should view sinners and unbelievers in our own culture. That they're blind. That they're blind to the glory of God. They're blind to the truth of Scripture. We may see it clearly. They don't. These are people who live in need of light. They live in need of, of that veil being supernaturally lifted so that they can see, truly see. Therefore, we shouldn't take rejection personally. We shouldn't be surprised by the rejection of our message, of the message of Jesus. When they say, oh, that's, that's fairy tale stuff. They're blind. We shouldn't take the rejection of our, our moral standards personally. We're meant to view people in this position of blindness with pity, with sorrow and grief, not judgment. I think of that story that's told, I think it's in Luke 9. Jesus and the disciples are on their way traveling south into the region of Samaria and he sends some messengers on ahead to try to find a place to stay and they go to a village say, hey, Jesus wants to stay here tonight and they, oh, I don't, I don't know that we want Jesus in our village. See, with Jesus came problems usually and I don't know the reasoning behind it but they, they basically said, we don't want to do that. The messengers come back and say, hey, Jesus, we're going to find a different place. They don't want you there and James and John said, oh, here it comes. Let's rain down fire. Right now, Jesus, let's pray. Let's pray fire from heaven comes and consumes all of these people who just rejected you. We've all felt that. What does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He's like, that's not the way. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm glad he showed greater patience with me and with you. More long-suffering and forbearance with you and with me than they were willing to show in that moment and that I'm often willing to show in those moments. What do we do then? We, we say, God, help them see. We pray that God would help them to see the truth of Scripture and the danger and the devastation of the path that they're on that's leading to perishing. Last point I want to make here is this. We have to remember our role. I love Paul's humility. He says we're servants. We're just servants of Jesus. And he says we're servants of you. And man, has he ever proved that? 
his love and service and willingness to bend over backwards and give of himself, probably more with the Corinthians than any other group of people that we encounter in the New Testament. He loves God with all his heart and he loves his neighbor. And friends, that's what we're called to. We're called to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And we're called to serve his creation. And we're called to love the people around us and be of service to them in whatever way we can. Serve. That means that our message, when we go out and we proclaim it, it's not a message about us. We're not, we're not meant to go out in our community and sell the, the, the message of Meadowview. We're meant to talk about Jesus. I love our church. I love this family. And I want to invite people to know and experience and be a part of this family. But we're not selling a product here. We're not selling a title. We're, we're, we're sharing a Savior. And we have to be careful that that's the message that people perceive. We're inviting them to Him. And what a privilege it is to be a part of that. Outstanding. Guys, this, this is the heart of discipleship. Paul is laying out for us what we're to strive to be and strive to do. Mm-hmm.